This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Happy weekend. It is week 50 still, though, this past week. Working, Tim, from home still for a lot of people. Yeah, and and Carol, um, I was I got to tell you, I was thinking about how long it's been since we've been in this lockdown environment. A long time. It has. It's been almost a year since I was inside a restaurant. <laughs> We're going to talk about that a little bit later on in our broadcast about what's next for the restaurant industry. But Tim, listen, it was a week where so much was going on. We saw a lot of volatility and pullbacks in tech stocks in particular on those valuation concerns. A lot of talk of the reflation trade and market rotation to value sectors. But countered with Fed Chairman Jerome Powell reaffirming his view that the U.S. economy needs support. Yeah. So what did it end up with? It meant the push and pull of the equity market throughout the week. So coming up, we have several voices weighing in on the markets, including one closely watched ETF investor whose comments to us seem to move both Bitcoin and Tesla this week. I'm just going to go ahead and say it's Kathy Wood. (laughs) It is Kathy Wood. Also, Invesco, home to the giant QQQ ETF. We caught up with CEO Martin Flanagan for another edition of Business Week Talks. And our recent chat with Nobel laureate Paul Krugman. We caught up with him. We talked about the economy, SPACs, GameStop, and more. We'll have a little highlight of that. All that to come, but we do begin with that investor who everyone wanted to hear from this week, and we had her live on air. And Tim, you mentioned ARK Investment founder, CEO, and CIO, Kathy Wood. What I've been surprised by over the last, really, four or five months is cyclicals and value stocks have uh, started to outperform the broad-based market indices. Uh, and the surprise to us is that uh, we uh, and our innovation strategies at ARK uh, outperformed as well. That's very unusual. Uh, so the way I have interpreted that is that the market is broadening out. The bull market is broadening out, which is a very healthy development. I think what we've seen in the last few days, the correction in technology is uh, perhaps, you know, rotational. Again, value, uh, there, uh, given how many years value has underperformed, uh, there could be a bit of rotation back into value. Uh, if, if you understand our portfolios, uh, you'll be very careful where you go in terms of the value space because disruptive innovation, the likes of which we have not seen in more than 100 years, is probably going to hurt a lot of value uh, sectors uh, more than growth sectors. Are you buying? I mean, the NASDAQ was down uh, almost 4%. Yes. The Tesla was down significantly. Did you buy? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And we, uh, we publish our trades at the end of every day. So uh, you will see them. The market's closed. Uh, we bought a lot of Tesla uh, today across any strategy that holds Tesla. And uh, we will be uh, publishing in a few weeks uh, uh, a report updating our um, thoughts about Tesla, uh, our excitement about the potential of a ride-hailing service as a bridge to an autonomous uh, service and our high and the higher odds that autonomous is going to happen for Tesla. Uh, and part of the reason for the higher odds is now that Waymo is on the road autonomously, we know it can be done. Uh, Tesla has so much more data than Google or anyone else or everyone else combined uh, that we think it's in the pole position. 
Well, it's interesting too, you know, it's funny, Kathy, people, you know, expecting you to be on and they were sending us tons of questions. You know, this whole idea of the treasure trove of data that Tesla has specifically, you talk about it a lot. You know, do other people believe it? Do you, are you seeing other, you know, people kind of uh, put that out as kind of one of the fundamental reasons that you want to own Tesla? It's not just a car company, right? It's a technology company. It's a battery company. Is that thesis yeah. of it being a data company getting a lot more recognition? We do not think uh, many uh, analysts or investors are giving Tesla credit for autonomous. Uh, if they were, the stock would be a lot higher. What we do think they're giving Tesla credit for increasingly is, you know, its electric vehicle franchise and how far ahead of the competition it, uh, Tesla is when it comes to battery technology, to artificial intelligence, both in the form of a chip. Uh, through the data collection, we think 30 billion plus miles compared to Google's 30 million-ish miles, uh, and still over-the-air software updates to uh, to change performance. It's it's remarkable that more are not on board, even the last one yet. Uh, so I think its franchise has legs here. So so how does that translate into market value? For Tesla, how much more opportunity is there? How much how much more opportunity is is left for this run up to continue? Well, I'll give you a sense of, uh, and this is from our Big Ideas 2021. You can get that on our site, arc-invest.com. Uh, we uh, we believe that the autonomous market, so the ride hailing market, but autonomous, will be a seven trillion dollar revenue opportunity. That was ARK Investment founder, CEO, and CIO Kathy Wood talking with us on Tuesday. That was a day of tech stock totally. volatility. It was. I mean, the timing of that interview, Carol, I want to say we're brilliant enough to actually have scheduled her well, knowing we are. what would. Okay, yeah, we are. We'll just keep it. But no, the interview was scheduled for a long time, and there was no better day to have her on than this past Tuesday. No, it was the perfect guest to talk about what was going on in the tech trade specifically, names like Tesla, Bitcoin. We all wanted to know from her because she has been one of the top performers, consistent performers on these trades. And when she talks, investors listen. Yeah, absolutely. So that interview, I've got to say her comments, they got read spikes throughout the week. They were among the most read, most watched, most listened to across Bloomberg platforms throughout the week. And coming up, we've got more of that interview with Kathy Wood. Were you kind of secretly rooting for a little bit of a, of a pullback um, to kind of get some of the performance chasing money out of the market? The answer to that question and her views on Bitcoin and more. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. It was just one week ago that Bloomberg reported on ARK Investments' Kathy Wood reaching $60 billion in assets. Tim, you reminded me on air that that was up from just $3.6 billion one year before. What a difference a year makes. A remarkable run. And despite some pullbacks and fund outflows this week, she's sticking to her fundamentals when it comes to her investments. Yeah, our deep dive conversation with Kathy, man, it was so popular on the Bloomberg this week. So we thought we would bring you a little bit more of it, including her thoughts on how long the reflation trade might last and if it is impacting how she is investing. I don't know how long this rotation will continue. All I do know is that we have a five-year time horizon. And our, uh, all of our 
price targets are five years out. Uh, a few days ago, I would have told you that the uh, returns that we're expecting, now we could be wrong, these are our estimates, so consider the source, but uh, the compound annual rate of return that we were expecting for our portfolios during the next five years was 15%, which is our minimum hurdle rate of return. Just given the last few days of correction, that is closer to 20%. Now, 15% compound annual rate of return over five years is a doubling over five years. Right. That's a healthy return. What happens very short term? I can't tell you. All I know is we are keeping our eyes on the prize, and the prize just got a little bit more interesting. But I have to ask you, were you kind of secretly rooting for a little bit of a, of a pullback um, to kind of get some of the performance chasing money out of the market? Well, I do believe uh, we we love a wall of worry, and we were seeing the wall of worry start to build. I saw it on social media, a lot of um, mm-hmm. chatter, uh, some just waiting for uh, our funds in particular uh, to take a tumble, uh, some maybe to buy, uh, and some happy to sell and short and all of that. We love the liquidity that this provides us. Uh, we think it's very healthy, a very healthy shakeout. But I'll, I'll give you a sense of what, where I, in history, uh, I felt this way before. In 1996, we were in a very interesting market. Alan Greenspan was uh, the Fed chairman. And he, at the time, uh, uh, warned all of us against irrational exuberance. Uh, and many investors were just beginning to understand how, how the Internet was working and uh, you know, what the interesting applications were going to be. Uh, we had another four years of uh, a move, which when you think about that time, that move was too much capital chasing too few stocks uh, too quickly. The technologies weren't ready. The costs were way too high. But all the seeds for what we're investing in were planted back then. So we've had 15 to 20 to 25 years of gestation of these seeds and now they're starting to flourish and we are ready from a technology point of view and from a cost point of view that's so important to see that electric vehicle costs come down uh so that by this time maybe in a year or two uh the sticker price of the average electric vehicle will below be below that of the average uh uh uh, gas-powered vehicle yeah, and, and by 2025, the average electric vehicle price will be 18000 and the Toyota Camry will still be at $25,000, wow. No brainers. Yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, Kathy, I got to ask, um, so much money is pouring into your funds. Uh, South Korean retail investors literally give you a nickname, Money Tree. <laughs> um, in, in terms of money, does it ever become too much that's pouring into your funds? Well, what I've uh, always said when we've been asked the capacity question is that if we are right and the five platforms that involve 14 different technologies are are ready for prime time if not already in the sweet spot of their s-curve then our capacity should grow exponentially with those platforms now what happened to us in the last year uh, was not exponential but parabolic growth in terms of the flows and it's been very gratifying, and we're so happy that more and more investors 
are diversifying into innovation. They need to, to hedge against all of the value traps that innovation is going to, uh, uh, is going to create. Uh, uh, but uh, we do believe that given the swoosh we had this year, um, we will need a little time to uh, have the capacity come our way. How is it coming our way? Well, you see, because of the performance of stocks like those in our portfolios, we're seeing uh, a significant number of IPOs, uh, uh, secondaries. Mm -hmm. There's the SPAC revolution. There's a SPAC revolution. And if you think about what happened even last year, uh, so our flagship fund was up around 150%. That meant that our capacity went up 150%. If you look at our performance since the, since, uh, for the past five years, uh, our performance of the flagship fund is up a thousand percent. So that means our capacity is up a thousand percent. And if we're right and we're still on these exponential growth trajectories, we should continue to find good capacity going forward. So I'm also curious about, you know, some of the positions you have, and I'm sure you've been asked about this before, Kathy, but, you know, I'm just looking at some of uh, our research that you guys are already a 10% holder in, I think, more than 20 companies and a 20% holder in three. And forgive me if my, my math's a little bit off, but I mean, is that, do you get nervous about that level of concentration? I mean, some investment managers would say so. How do you feel about that? Yes, well, we've put in risk controls to prevent, uh, again, some of that happened because of the swoosh. Right, very fair enough. We put in risk, con- yes, we put in risk controls so that, um, you know, we do, so that we will not be considered, quote unquote, an affiliate of, of any of these companies. That's, I, I think, uh, what, uh, we want to be on the right side of regulation. Uh, and so you will see fewer and fewer names over 15%, let's say, uh, going forward, especially as many of our companies are issuing, uh, are, are, are doing secondaries, mm-hmm. importantly. And the reason they need to do them is often in the world of disruptive innovation, and particularly because of artificial intelligence. The companies uh, that invest the most aggressively today are going to have a higher probability of winning winner-take-most markets, like I just described, autonomous taxi networks. Look, Tesla is a company, as Kathy mentioned, that has a lot of cash. We've talked about this before, Carol. $1.5 billion. Look, to a lot of people, that's a lot of money. But for Tesla, it's not that much of an investment in Bitcoin, at least not right now. Yeah, she doesn't seem worried in terms of their cash position. All right, still ahead? I think we still have another six months of rough times. Nobel laureate Paul Krugman, he is back. He's talking zombies and getting the vaccine, his second shot. That's coming up next. This is Boomer. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. So Tim and I recently caught up with Paul Krugman, Nobel laureate, economist, New York Times columnist, City University of New York, distinguished professor of economics. The titles go on and on. He's also editor of a lot of books. Yeah, um, you know, more than two dozen. So we can't list them all here. But his latest book now out in paperback is Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics and the Fight for a Better Future. And on the day we talked with him, he actually had tweeted out that he had gotten his second coronavirus vaccine. So we had to start there. 
I'm a little weary. I think there's a little bit of the second day effect of the of the vaccine, but I'm fine. Okay, so you are feeling a little bit. We've heard that from a fair amount of people, so you do feel a little yeah. something. Yeah, it's 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 fine. It uh, the water is fine. Uh, jump in. At point <laughs> we're, we're, I'm ready. We're ready and eager. So, <laughs> yeah. Paul, let's talk about kind of uh, this world where we are. But I do want to ask you: when you look at the U.S. economy, the impact of COVID, there are some economic reports that do feel like things are certainly getting better. Labor market's still tough. How do you see the U.S. economy? I think we still have another six months of rough times because it is very hard to do normal business when people are rightfully still afraid of of of, of covid and so we're going to be a pandemic depressed economy uh for well past the middle of this year but i'm actually i'm quite optimistic about after that i think we are we don't have the same kind of uh overhang of excessive debts and so on that we had after the last crisis we are apparently on the verge of getting an adequate uh, economic relief package. So I think we're going to have a probably going to be feeling pretty optimistic by this time next year. Well, that's that's some that's some good news. Um, what about when it comes to the labor market specifically? How do we get millions of Americans who lost their job during this pandemic back to work? I think that's going to be a lot easier than people imagine. Uh, the The job losses are concentrated. Uh, there are a lot of it's not all there, but a lot of the job losses are concentrated in sectors that are basically shut down because of pandemic risks. And once we have widespread vaccination, you know, this is all assuming that the variants don't get ahead of us and, and we lose control of the pandemic again. But once we have widespread vaccination, effective herd immunity, people will start eating in restaurants again. People will start to travel again. There'll be some dislocations because we won't go back to exactly the same economy we had before. But you know, after the after the last crisis, there were many people who were saying, oh, just those jobs are not coming back. Workers don't have the right skills. And they were totally wrong. Turned out that we were quite capable of getting back to full employment. And there's no reason to think that isn't true again. Do you think that when we get on the other side of this, that we do, you, you're optimistic, obviously, as you said, that we do have potentially a run in the economy, a run perhaps in the financial markets, just like we had after the financial crisis, which was kind of low and slow, but kept on going for a long time? Well, this one looks to me like a, a lot faster. Okay. And there were reasons that there was a combination of reasons why it was so slow last time. One of it was that this there was this legacy of excess household debt, uh, which is not the situation now. Another was that we had a lot of destructive fiscal austerity that was holding back the recovery. And, uh, the you know, those by-elections in Georgia made all the difference. It means that this time, and Democrats have learned the lesson. So now that they have, even if it's a razor-thin majority, they're, they're not going to make that mistake again. They're going to go for a big package. And so I, I actually think this is going to be a very different story. I, if you believe some of the projections out there about growth, uh, it's going to be, it, it really is morning in America-style growth that we may be looking at. We may be looking at something like, a, you know, over a fourth quarter on fourth quarter, six, seven percent. Uh, this, is, this is looking... Very, very different. Not at all the story. You know, don't don't fight the last war on this one. Well, you know, it's interesting. So, with that optimism, do you think we still need a stimulus package? And I think I know the answer to it because I know you've been supportive of it. Do you still think we need more help? Yeah, so it's not a stimulus package. It's mostly just not what it's about. It's a it's an economic rescue package. It is 
we have a miserable time. We won't be back to anything like full employment, even with all of this stuff, until early next year. And in the meantime, mass unemployment, uh, lots of disruption, many businesses in great in, in terrible under terrible stress. Uh, the state and local governments, it's very uneven, but many of them are still in deep trouble. So it, it's almost certainly, it's a funny thing, the, the, the I, I hate calling it the stimulus package, the relief package is enormously popular, has gigantic public approval, relatively little disapproval, even Republicans approve of it, and it will probably not get a single Republican vote in Congress. All right, Tim, so it sounds like politics as usual. That was Nobel laureate and author of Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. Of course, that was Paul Krugman. Check out his book. It's now out in paperback. And also check out that full conversation. It's on our podcast feed at Bloomberg.com because Tim, he talked GameStop, he talked Bitcoin, he talked about a lot of things. Yeah, we got him to talk Robin Hood a little bit as <laughs> Well, we did. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next, our exclusive Business Week Talks interview with Invesco CEO Marty Flanagan on whether SPACs are in bubble territory. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. All right. So Invesco, you know who they are. They are the independent investment management firm running more than $1.3 trillion. And Tim, that includes the giant QQQ ETF tracking the NASDAQ 100. It's massive. It is. And CEO Marty Flanagan has run the Atlanta-based fund company since 2005 and during his tenure has acquired the power shares in Guggenheim ETF businesses, as well as Oppenheimer funds and Van Campen fund families. And we caught up with him at the end of January for another edition of Bloomberg Business Week Talks. We gave you a tease of that conversation you might recall just a few weeks ago so here's the complete conversation that began by talking about the year like no other that we've all had 2020 was you know something that none of us have ever imagined living and uh i will say a lot of the work that was done in 2020 sets up a very interesting uh, environment going into 2021 i think um, everybody's looking for strong economic growth in uh, the United States in particular and most countries around the world, driven by the optimism and the ability to start to get back to work with the vaccine coming and uh, all of us, frankly, learning how to work in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what's interesting is our Peter Coy, Bloomberg economics editor, uh, Bloomberg Businessweek economics editor, he's got a story out there about whether or not we're setting up to be like the roaring 1920s, The what we saw after another time period in our history where we had a pandemic, we had a tough economy, um, and whether or not we see we, co- you know, we come roaring back. How do you see it? Do you think that we might be creating bubbles right now and that we're going to pay the piper at some point? Or do you see us setting up for maybe a really positive, type of market environment, some economic momentum that feels much more normal and maybe even upbeat. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> lots of good thoughts there. Let's go to the more immediate outlook. I mean, I think you could really have, uh, as your economists are saying, a really strong economy, right, with all the fiscal stimulus that's been put in there, with all the uh, monetary policy uh, changes that have been put in, uh, monetary support. But frankly, all businesses really put the head down and did everything they can to be operating more efficiently you know, really is a protection last year. When you look into this year, you could see some real earnings surprises. Uh, we're going to need that because of some of the valuations. But, um, you know, the mo- momentum that we're seeing in our business is as strong as it's been in, you know, two and a half years. So 
I do think that is part of the optimism that's coming out of it and really people seeking you know, greater returns as in, you know, with uh, yields being so low and you know, so, so much of the markets. So Marty, what will the pandemic, what's been the impact on your business and running uh, a money management business uh, in 2020? What has been kind of the lasting impact here? Yeah, so I, I would, uh, you know, to put it in perspective, um, you know, I, I would say it was harder for money managers, I'd say, us, I will say specifically than the financial crisis, just because of the steepness of that and, and, and so quickly the market pullback. And you know, whoever would imagine having 99% of your global workforce working from home. Right. Uh, we did and everybody else did. But how we're interacting with clients around the world is forever changed. Um, you know, every, you know the, the, we can bring... Uh, you know, the whole organization to, you know, our clients in a moment's notice. Uh, now we could have done it before. It just wasn't the cultural thing to do. Uh, we will end up seeing, you know, clients in person going forward, but these digital engagements have just really changed the game. I think that's a really positive thing. Um, and I will say the other thing, our industry has been, as you know, you know, going under a tremendous change. And uh, that was happening before the crisis, but uh, the bigger going to get bigger and they're only getting stronger. It's going to happen faster post this pandemic. Well, and it's interesting. We've seen a fair amount of consolidation too in your industry. What's your expectation? Do you think that there'll be further consolidation within the asset mon- management and money management industry this year? I do. You know, look, I've been saying that for a period of time, but I will say, uh, yes, ever since I've got in the industry, there's calls for consolidation. Very little happened. It's very different, though, now. Uh, you know, clients are working fewer money managers, and that's happening around the world. Uh, there's a greater expectation what clients want from money managers. That's ultimately a very good thing for clients and consumers, uh, but it's putting a lot of pressure on money managers, and that is really where you absolutely need scale within your business at multiple levels. Um, and it, that's how you're going to serve your clients. They want depth and breadth and uh, capabilities beyond just managing money. So I, I think you're going to continue to see uh, combinations. Uh, but the other thing, you know, the growth, it's not all going to be through m and I mean, there will be just firms that are disadvantaged will leave and they'll go to the stronger firms. Nelson Peltz is on your board. His Tryon fund management has a nearly 10% holding in the company, I think the third largest in Invesco. What's the end game? I mean, we we're just talking about consolidation. Um, what are you hearing from him or what do you expect in terms of how this relationship might impact the company? Yeah, so uh, uh, Nelson uh, joined the board, as did Ed Garden, his partner, and uh, Tom Fink, who uh, was the CEO of um, bearings uh, at the end of last year as you know both all three really talented people they, they know the sector extremely well um and uh nelson and ed and tom consist with our board view the industry in a very same way um that uh, it can just be a large growing industry but it's going through dramatic change and that um you know this this sort of movement to you know stronger and stronger larger and you know, more capable firms is really you know top of mind with them and um, you know, it's just very helpful to have, you know, people that have been through uh, all sorts of change and development in other industries, too, and bringing that perspective. So uh, it's been, uh, you know, early days for all three of them, but it's been great additions to what is already a very strong board. Is it safe to say you have to need, you have to be bigger to go after the likes of, of BlackRock and Vanguard? Uh, yeah, I, so I look at a different way, really. Uh, it's really to serve our clients, right? And, you know, what we're seeing from our clients all around 
world is they want everything from passive portfolios to factor portfolios to high conviction active alternatives and they want you know uh, a bunch of analytical tools and support to help them do their job and you really have to have scale to do that and so not just you know investment KP, uh, uh, you know, skills but also the operational skills and the ability to invest in things like technology to serve clients and if you do that very well um, you know you're going to continue to grow Hey, listen, you know, you just said, you know, yeah, no, you talk about all the options that your clients want and that that's really what, you know, what you guys stay focused on, uh, what cl- your clients want, what investors want. But I do wonder too, um, we've had so many conversations here at Bloomberg about, you know, actively managed ETFs. You know, what do you think is the future of that? So we just launched uh, four uh, non-parents parent ETFs uh, in December. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually very interesting. So obviously the ETF growth has been, you know, just spectacular. It's largely been in cap-weighted indexes, as you know, uh, but where we have been very successful is in the factor area. So it creates another alternative where you can have non-transparent ETFs for active management within a different vehicle. There is a preference towards that vehicle. Uh, I, that said, uh, we're really excited with the launches, but I suspect it's going to take some time before you're going to see a lot of momentum in the area. But again, very few money managers have that capability. We're one of them, and we're happy to have it. Hey, listen, one place that you guys are seeing a lot of momentum in and you continue to focus on it, Marty, is obviously what you're doing in China. And I know you guys are looking for growth. I think you put this out last year of more than 40% in your China assets in three years. Um, how is that going? And I know you've been looking to boost your ownership to, I think, 51% in the joint venture that you have there. How is it going? And are you at all a little nervous about a new administration and what the relationship will be between the U.S. and China? So, um, you know, right now we manage $76 billion of uh, assets in China for Chinese, whether it be through our joint venture you're referring to or directly with institutions. The growth has been unbelievable. It was a record year again for um, uh, our China business in the last half of the year. They had something like $17 billion in net inflows. So it is, um, you know, an overnight success after, you know, 20 plus years, um, you know, in in the marketplace. Um, I I think, frankly, um, uh, the relations between U.S. and China is important. Uh, it was definitely creating complications for all of us that were operating there. Um, you know, not in a material way, but uh, I'd say it, it was uneasy as you were looking to the future. And I think it's really important uh, for two world powers to, um, you know, be on the same page. And it's good for uh, each country is good for the world. So uh, I'm hopeful that that's what's going to happen um, as uh, we look forward here. Okay, it does feel like a little bit of a new day. Safe to say. Uh, early days, but it sure does. Yes. Yep. <laughs> well, let me also ask you um, just some of the things we just have about a minute or so, a minute and a half left here. Some of the things that we are talking about increasingly, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's Robinhood, what of kind of some of the newer trends that are out there that you find interesting and that you think investors overall, folks in the financial community, in the investment management world need to pay attention to right now? Yeah, so it, 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 uh, it's a good question. It all depends on who you are, right? But mm-hmm. uh, I, I think you know, the reality still gets back to basics. You know, truly understand what you're trying to accomplish, what returns you're trying to get, what risks you're willing to take, and you know, the basic of time horizons. Uh, developments such as Bitcoin and, and the like, I, I think it's still early days. It's obviously very, very topical. You're seeing a lot of energy behind it right now. Uh, I'd say it's not, uh, not for everybody. And uh, my basic view is that... Um, uh, very interesting, but you know you're going to see central banks in the game, you know, at some point too, and I think that puts uh, the value of it at risk, quite frankly. So and is that 
two years out, three years out. I don't know. Yeah. Hey, let's, one last thing. Um, SPACs is another thing that they're just kind of exploding. Um, does it make you at least a little bit nervous in terms of what that might mean for the investment world? Does that look like a bubble to you? And just got about 30 seconds here. Yeah. So uh, anytime uh, something grows that fast <laughs> and it's so wonderful, it's uh, probably uh, good to question uh, you know, how long it's going to last. So I, I would warn the bubble camp, quite frankly. All right. And if you want to hear that again, check out the full conversation online at Bloomberg.com on our podcast feed. Highlights, too, in Bloomberg Businessweek magazine now on newsstands online and on the Bloomberg. That, of course, was Marty Flanagan, the CEO of Invesco. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. More ahead in our next hour, including... Sneakers. Who knew? They're a new asset class. That's our cover story. Plus, the new CEO of Marriott International on leading during uncertain times. And we talk crypto regulation with the CEO of Oasis Pro Markets. And a shocker and a really tough story this week. Tiger. We're talking, of course, about Tiger Woods. The car crash, right? Heard around the world. And we check in with the editor of Bon Appetit on the state of the restaurant industry. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including Marriott's got a new CEO. No doubt he is having to lead during a very difficult time. Yeah, that's right. Plus, we've got the CEO of Oasis Pro Markets on crypto regulation and recent surges in Bitcoin. So much volatility. Also, Tiger Woods in the news a lot this week. I got to say, when the headlines crossed, we all just had to like kind of stop and take a breath. Uh, we're going to talk about, though, how broadcasters and fans are facing life without their biggest star sooner than they expected. And we're talking the restaurant industry. Bon Appetit, its new editor on taking over following a tough time at the magazine and getting back to restaurants. First, though, this week's cover story in the magazine. It's a fun one. Shoes teenage resellers, man. They are wringing profits out of everything, Tim, from the latest Yeezys to outlet store leftovers, and they're turning sneakers into bona fide asset classes. Yep, you heard that one right. Writing for Bloomberg Businessweek, Joshua Hunt. Joining us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor, Joel Weber, with more. I thought it was uh, such a perfect time to do this one is, you know, in this age of Bitcoin and meme stocks and all these things that feel intangible. It's like, oh, by the way, there's a hard good that's actually uh, an incredible market and it's become amazingly uh, uh, lucrative for for a certain, um, uh, you know, web savvy, entrepreneurial spirited kind of person. Uh, and what we've really seen just in the, you know, there's, it's not like sneaker reselling is new. This has been happening for years, but what we've seen just in the past couple of years, and then I think it's really come to into its own during the pandemic is how online everything really has become. And StockX a couple of years ago really created a new e-commerce platform. Um, it also helped create an, even like an index that could track some of the, 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 the most lucrative of shoes and the ultra rare ones. Um, the performance of that is something to behold. But I think what, what Josh really found was even, you know, post StockX, things have changed and the pandemic uh, has really brought out, you know, like a, a supply and demand element that's feeding the market. So, so Josh, why don't you tell us about um, how you found a character uh, who, who is, you know, became basically the narrative for the story? Yeah, I mean, uh, speaking of 
turning to the young. In this case, finding the right character for the story was all about Instagram and social media, uh, which is kind of where these, you know, teenage resellers uh, live and die. I mean, they it, it's it's like their their branding and their how they how they sort of. Uh, show their clout and show their success and and communicate with um, you know the people that are going to be not just their customers but their 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 colleagues you know their allies in arbitrage as I say in the article um, you know a lot of those initial meetings are happening through Instagram so you know I spent the first uh, half of 2020 in in Tokyo Japan and with uh, the pandemic. Uh, in a little different way than a lot of America was. And, you know, when stores started opening back up there in the spring, I spent a lot of time walking through this neighborhood, this neighborhood Harajuku, which has uh, for a long time had all these stores that specialize in selling rare sneakers, which is what what sort of got me um, thinking about this in the first place. And inspired by that, by seeing this sort of real-life version of one of these online markets uh, in Tokyo, where they've had them for, you know, more than a decade and a half, I dove into Instagram, and I pretty, you know, sometimes you just have a feeling about a subject. And (laughs) right away, I knew, based on this kid's Instagram activity, that I had something special in this kid, Joe. Uh, and you're talking about uh, uh, somebody who's uh, West Coast Streetwear is the name of the company he's got um, and his Instagram presence. And, you know, what you're saying there, Josh, is like it's, it makes so much sense because you've got everyone. You can understand that there could be like a really ultra rare sneaker that, you know, is a grail is <laughs> the lingo. Right. And you can get five figure yeah. prices on that, those kind of things. But what what's so interesting about uh, uh, Joe's story and West Coast Streetwear in the pandemic is basically he realized that the other end of the spectrum, what the bricks, which are basically just inventory sneakers, could also become incredibly lucrative online. So, so how did that part of the story unfold? Once, you know, time and time again, the answer to my questions was just way different than what I thought it was going to be. I mean, uh, stores and brands offer discount codes that uh, might be tied to a customer's birthday or something like that. And, you know, these could be up to 50% off codes. And guys like Joe, who are smart, they buy these things up and they apply them instead of, you know, a $300 or $500 purchase like an ordinary consumer might. They apply them to, like, the maximum level purchase that they can buy them to, which is sometimes, you know, tens of tens of, of dollars or even, you know, some of these orders run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And there are all these interesting ways that these, uh, kids like Joe make these bricks, these less loved shoes, these kind of everyday, you know, Nike and Adidas sneakers and New Balance sneakers. And, you know, they, they make those very profitable. Look, we, we talk a lot about meme stocks. We talk about crypto being an asset yeah. class, the boom in SPACs. Um, look, who would have thought that, <laughs> that sneakers would create this new generation asset class speculator? I got to tell you, teenagers would have thought. It's brilliant, really. And if you think about it, there's a lot of websites and, and areas like devoted to this now where you can be buying and trading sneakers. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up. No doubt hotels have been hit hard by the pandemic. A lot of the weight of that impact has fallen on the shoulders of our owners and franchisees. We've got the new CEO of Marriott International on leading during an undoubtedly difficult time. This is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. A big business story this week, Tim, and it was about Marriott International naming Tony Capuano as chief executive officer, tapping the veteran development executive to lead the hotel giant's recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. But it's a tough time for the company. Oh, it's a tough time for the company. And and look, Capuano, he's 55 years old. He's replacing Arnie Sorensen, who died at 62 after a battle with pancreatic cancer, becoming just the fourth leader in the company's history. He also faces the daunting task of navigating a global crisis that has sapped travel demand and and raised doubts about the long-term prospects of traveling for business. Are we going to still do this post-pandemic? Exactly, exactly. It's a really important question. And we began with how the Marriott team is doing, though, after the loss of Sorensen, someone who has always been generous with his time when it came to Bloomberg. I talked to our team around the world over the last few days and, and the two words that I really thought about were ref, uh, reflection and resolve. Uh, all of us are reflecting on the, this, this terrible loss, uh, the loss for Arnie's family, the loss for the extended Marriott family, uh, and the loss for the business community more broadly, as, as you suggested. But I think there is a real resolve here. Um, this is a company that is approaching its 94th anniversary and we've been through recessions and 9-11 and the great financial crisis and the pandemic. And it's a company that has the resolve to continue to build and grow and create opportunities for our folks and really help the company realize its promise. What? Uh, but it's been a difficult week. No, and, and you've really all been on our minds. Um, and you talk about family and you think about the Marriott family, your franchise owners, uh, you treat them like they are family members. Tell me how they are doing in this environment and what it looks like uh, going forward this year and then beyond. Well, the pandemic is obviously a historic and and terrible crisis from a whole host of perspectives. Uh, The travel industry has been hit particularly hard and a lot of the weight of that that, um, impact has fallen on the shoulders of our owners and franchisees. Uh, They are under tremendous financial pressure. Uh, Some of the hotels at the the outset of the pandemic, we had hundreds of hotels close. Mm -hmm. Uh, On a global basis, we were running 12% occupancy, and that created great distress for our owner community. Uh, As we've seen through the last number of months, we are seeing slow and steady recovery, particularly domestically in drive-to destinations. Uh, Interestingly, China, which seems to have its arms relatively around the virus, uh, we're seeing occupancy levels approaching pre-pandemic, which is quite encouraging and maybe represents a bit of a roadmap for the rest of the world. But at the same time, we continue to see instances where there's a spike in infection rates in a given market, and it has a pretty stark chilling impact on the pace of demand growth. Uh, Tony, you ran the uh, hotel, the you, you ran the company's hygiene initiative. Um, what should customers expect if they haven't traveled to a Marriott property uh, in a few years or since the pandemic started? How will that experience be different post-pandemic? I think in a few ways. I think really starting during the booking process, uh, when they go to Marriott.com to, to make their reservations, there are pretty uh, thorough and transparent disclosures about any uh, modifications we've made to the operations of a given hotel. Whether there are outlets that are closed, that have limitations on capacity or modified hours. Uh, When they arrive, 
Uh, they will see every one of their fellow guests and every Marriott associate in masks. They will see electrostatic cleaners uh, uh, disinfecting the public areas. Uh, they will have optionality around whether they want daily housekeeping, but they know that when they arrive in their room for the first time, that there is a hospital grade level of cleaning that's been done to that room before their arrival. And they will experience a lot of advances that we've made in, from a technology perspective uh, to make it as touchless an environment as possible. We've made some pretty significant upgrades to the Bonvoy app and the ability to check in remotely, to order room service remotely. Uh, there's a chat function to talk to the hotel staff if there are service requests. And so I think those are the most significant changes. How much of it stays with us, Tony? Listen, you're someone who I know used to travel, I'm assuming, a lot, and we can talk about how much traveling you've been doing. I used to travel a lot, haven't done much in 12 months. How much of what changes in the hotel industry, the hospitality industry, really stays with us longer term? Like, it sounds like some of the digitization and the apps, like that to me sounds like a great thing. Um, I'm hoping there's a day when I can walk into a hotel lobby and I don't have a mask on and I don't have to be so worried. And I like housekeeping, I'm just gonna say. <laughs> so I'm just curious, how much stays with us, do you right. think, longer term? <laughs> Yeah, you know, all of these decisions are often informed by what we hear from our guests, mm. but I think your intuition is right. I, when I look across all the changes we've had to make in response to the pandemic, I think the, the technological advances, the optionality of touchless experiences, I think those will continue post-pandemic. Uh, the, the nice thing will be, to your point, we all aspire to get to a place where no one has a mask, there are no plexiglass uh, barriers. And then it will really be based upon guest preference. There are some guests that love to go to the front desk, engage with our associates, get local restaurant recommendations. And there are others that want to check in, get a mobile key and go straight to their room. And I think we all look forward to the day where we can offer both of those options to our guests. Mm. Hey, Tony, we saw something really interesting happen at the beginning of the pandemic. When lockdown started back in March, Airbnb really struggled and they, they struggled very quickly and laid off employees. And then a, a, a few months later, the company really started to recover as, as people wanted to spend a long time in homes away from their primary residences. I, I'm wondering how you think about Airbnb and how you're thinking about competition from Airbnb over the next few years. Well, Tim, we, um, as you know, in 2019, we launched Marriott Homes and Villas, uh, not with a, an eye towards going head to head with Airbnb. Uh, I don't think we'll find ourselves in the business of traditional home sharing uh, or couch surfing or any of those areas. Um, but we've really focused on the upper end of the market and whole home rentals. And we think the value proposition that, that we offer is really predicated on uh, consumer confidence around safety, uh, a service level that our customers expect, and a linkage to the Bonvoy loyalty program. And the ecosphere, as we know, is, is made up of many brands and strategies, as we heard from the new Marriott International CEO, yet, yet someone who has been at the company for years, Tony Capuano. Yeah, he's someone who really knows the brand. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, what the SEC is thinking about when it comes to regulation of crypto. That's next with the CEO of Oasis Pro Markets. This is Bloomberg.
Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York. To Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. To Boston, Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Nearly three weeks ago, Pat Lavecchia spoke to the board of the SEC about developing a regulation battle plan for cryptocurrencies. Regulators are looking at this, Tim. Uh, yeah, and they don't necessarily <laughs> know what to do. Pat keeps in touch with the SEC and regulators as CEO at Oasis Pro Markets. It's a FINRA and SEC-approved digital asset broker-dealer. He's also managing partner of Lavecchia Group. It's a privately held merchant bank, and he spent some 30 years on Wall Street, working in investment banking and capital markets. He knows a thing or two about the industry. He really does. We're in discussions with our regulators all the time. Right. Um, but um, this is really, you know, we've been spending time over the last several weeks with um, uh, the innovation groups at the regulators and coming up with ideas, uh, sharing ideas, getting their feedback, etc. cetera. Uh, this whole blockchain uh, area and what we focus on is digital securities, and mm-hmm. I can talk a bit about that later. is is completely new. I'd like to say that. Um, well, actually, I don't like it, but it's reality. We're a bicycle with training wheels with Ferrari brakes, which are the <laughs> regulators. You know, and, it's a great uh, way of explaining it. Actually, that that's where we are today. Eventually, the Ferrari, the bicycle will become a Ferrari, but you know that's that's several years away. And um, so we have a lot of ideas, and the regulators know this tsunami is coming. Um, You know, they're very focused on cryptos right now and DeFi or decentralized finance. We're taking it a step further and focused on uh, digital securities, and we view ourselves as the bridge between traditional finance and DeFi. That's that's a direction. That's our mission statement. That's where we're heading. But they know this is coming. Uh, you know, we call it a, a tsunami right. of, um, of opportunities, and uh, it's a tidal wave uh, regarding what's happening in the crypto space. And they're trying to stay ahead of it. A lot of smart people there uh, trying their best. You know, they're the guardians of our financial system at right. the SEC and FINRA, and they want to make sure that they get it right. So talk to me a little bit more about digital securities, exactly what they are, what it, what it presents uh, in terms of opportunities for investors, Di- unpack it a little bit more for me, if you would, Pat. Sure. Um, digital securities are very similar to traditional securities. Well, so what we were approved for were equities, uh, broadly defined, and fixed income for corporates, both public, uh, non-national market securities, as well as privates. And by privates, I mean all exempt securities, mm-hmm. so Reg D, Reg S, 144s, etc., and they rep- represent a proof of ownership of some type on the balance sheet and are an underlying asset of a company. But unlike traditional securities, they can be programmed through smart contracts to comply with regulatory requirements and standards as well. And they can be purchased and traded just like any other security, but it involves the blockchain. So it's very bespoke. It can be very tailored, um, but all the back office um, so I'll give you an example with GameStop and the halting of trading mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. So one of the the issues that have come up is it's trade plus two days, right? And it, you know, in the 1960s it was you know it was transaction day plus five days, right? Uh, and then in 1973, and then all, let's jump all the way to 1994, it became trade plus 
three days. Right, right. Then it took another 24 years for it to get to trade plus two days. And while the UI has, has improved, like on any trading app you might have, E-Trade, Charles Schwab, Robinhood, the, the back end is, is, uh, has been improved over the years, but it's still based on the infrastructure from the 1970s. Now, what blockchain does with digital securities, it, it, it really, it's not a revolution, but an evolution right. of the trading system. So it's just taking it. Yeah, it's just taking it to the technology level. So I feel like Pat, in our uh, talking to you, and also just some of the research I did coming into this, I know enough. <laughs> I know enough to be dangerous. So in terms of digital securities, I mean, you you basically you know you own an underlying asset, right? What are the advantages? Is it the liquidity aspects? Is it the security aspects? Is it that you can have fractional ownership of something that you might not have been able to own otherwise? Yeah, absolutely. All the above. Um, There's also uh, the advantages. We were approved for digital cash payments for digital securities. So if you own stable coins, for instance, or... um, you know, eventually CBDCs, and I, I heard the uh, comment uh, you had mentioned about Yellen. Mm-hmm. She actually, while she is not a fan of Bitcoin, she actually came out and also said that the central bank should be looking at sovereign debt currencies issued on the blockchain. So um, she's not a big fan of Bitcoin, but right. she, in a sense, was endorsing C- CBDCs to a certain extent. And that was Oasis Pro Market CEO Pat Lavecchia. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, one of the big stories of the week that's coming up next. We're going to talk about Tiger Woods, that crash. We're certainly wishing for his quick recovery, but I got to say, the incident also echoing across the golf industry. That's next. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. A big story this week, the car crash that severely injured Tiger Woods, shocking the sports world and Tim, really the world at large. Yeah, we're all wishing him the best. The accident, though, is also forcing golf broadcasters and brands to face life without the biggest star sooner than they expected. And that was addressed by Bloomberg News media reporter Jerry Smith. He is someone who loves golf, an avid watcher, and he reports on it. And he wrote about how the industry may have to move on without him. Obviously, everyone's hoping that he is able to, uh, you know, recover from the injury um, from this, this what looks like a, uh, a really devastating car crash. Yeah, and and you know, I do wonder though, from someone who grew up watching golf, my dad played it, my brothers play it. I mean, Jack Nicholas, Arnie Palmer, like all these people, like. Tiger Wood is somebody who really kind of reinvigorated the game. That's right. I mean, if you think back, he turned pro in, in 1996, and um, you know he won the Masters um, in 1997. And winning that tournament, I mean, it really changed the game. It brought so many, so many people into the game who had never, um, you know, really followed the sport. And over the next decade or so, I mean, he really dominated. Um, you know, he was by far the best player. Um, there really wasn't uh, anyone who was close to competing with him. And, you know, there was a lot of talk, at least in the early days of his career, where, you know, his his personal story, his, his father uh, was African-American, his, his mother uh, was of Asian descent. I mean, it, it was, 
you know, a lot of people had hoped that it would bring people of different races into the game. Um, and that has not really proven to be true, but he is still, you know, he was such a big draw and he, and he really still was a big draw to the game. Um, but he just really dealt with a lot over the last decade, uh, a lot of injuries with his back and a lot of surgeries. Um, you know, obviously is well publicized, um, you know, uh, marital infidelities and, and he really wasn't the player in the last couple of years that he, uh, that he had been. But I think there was a lot of people who were hoping he could still find his game. And, and certainly his sponsors and the TV networks were hoping for that as well. Right. And there's a lot of them. And I want to get into it. My, I have to say, though, my co-host, Tim Stenovic, uh, who has worked with you before, reminded me how much you love golf and have closely followed it. I think he said um, that even mentioned that, I guess, when you guys worked together before that, you kind of would watch golf at work. <laughs> so I hope I'm, <laughs> hope I'm not like uh, calling you out on anything. Um, but no, you, you love the game. You know it. You know, when you heard about Tiger, you know, and the accident, what, what was the first thing that came to mind? I mean, obviously, um, you know, uh, concerns mm-hmm. for whether he would survive the crash. Um, and also as a fan of the sport, I, I mean, I was um, – Disappointed. I think a lot of people, uh, and Tiger himself, uh, just said last weekend he was still holding out hope that he was going to compete in the Masters um, in April. And, um, you know, his back had been bothering him, but he thought he might play. And, and that would have been, um, you know, the TV viewership, uh, CBS broadcast the weekend of the Masters. I mean, the, the viewership, if Tiger had played in the Masters and, and potentially um, competed and won again like he did in, in 2019, I mean, the, the ratings for that would be through the roof. Um, so I, I think just, you know, as a fan right. of the game, I was disappointed that he um, is going to be sidelined for quite a while, if, if not his entire career. And and you mentioned, you know, listen, we are Bloomberg. There's a business aspect to it. I mean, Discovery was working with Woods, right? They recently bought Golf Digest mag- magazine, and they were working on content together. I mean, this really has to be restructured. Just got about 45 seconds left. Yeah, that's right. Discovery has a streaming service called Golf TV where he was giving lessons um, as part of that. Um you know, he has sponsors like Nike, TaylorMade, Bridgestone that are not going to be able to capitalize on him, um, you know, competing in tournaments for the foreseeable future. So, you know, his sponsors are expected to stick with him, uh, but it's really a big question mark whether he ever um, plays tournament golf again. And even though there's like some younger, you know, great stars out there, there's no one who's quite stepped up to the plate like Tiger has, has he? Just quickly. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, Brooks Kepka, Bryson DeChambeau. I mean, there's a lot of um, young stars that are um, getting more attention now. But, um, you know, I don't think anybody is going to um, get the same kind of um, star power that Tiger Woods did. And that was Bloomberg News media reporter Jerry Smith. We're going to wrap up this week with restaurants and industry disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic and economic shutdown. We know that, Tim, because we've talked with many in the industry from Danielle Ballou, Eric Repair, John Taffer of Bar Rescue. This is an industry that is just in a tough place. Some 110,000 restaurants nationwide have closed permanently or for the long term since the pandemic took hold, with more than 4,000 closures in New York City alone. That's according to the New York State Restaurant Association. So for more on the restaurant scene, setback and eventual comeback, we checked in with Dawn Davis. She's the editor of Bon Appetit. We also, though, had to kick it off with some of the turmoil that has been at the magazine. 
named in late summer. I came to Bon Appetit, actually started in November, so I've been here a little bit more than three months. And honestly, there was nowhere to go but up because they had hit a low, as they kind of reckon with their kind of racial and cultural past. And we have a team that's committed to, you know, providing recipes and providing a service to the people who need us during the pandemic where we're all cooking more. I feel that the people who've stayed are really committed and I hopefully am creating an environment where people feel free to, you know, talk openly about what's going on and just putting out a really good product. My first issue came out in March. Mm-hmm. I've got I'm it in my hands. about that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it reflects a diversity of perspective diversity of tastes. There's something for everyone in terms of accessibility, in terms of an advanced cook, beginning cook, and, and different tastes. So we are cohering as a team. Well, that is so interesting. I heard you say diversity several times in terms of how you are covering things in the magazine. Like, in terms of getting around racism within the co- corporate culture, whether it's yours, anywhere, whether it's in society, we really need to approach everything with diversity. I think diversity from different perspectives, you know, even age diversity, we, we are mm-hmm. better when we have different people from different generations and different perspectives giving feedback. And so I think the product is different. Also, I did a story about essential workers. It's called The Hands That Feed Us. And even having a, a trained chef but who chooses to work at a cafeteria and at a church, you know, she's never been in a magazine like Bon Appetit. So that is a diversity of perspective. And obviously, we have ethnic and cultural diversity in our pages. We have a Filipinx chef from Seattle um, who ha- runs a wonderful restaurant called Mustang. So we're trying to shake it up, but always keep it fresh and always about the food at the same time. That's been the challenge. People want diversity, but they also want recipes that they can use to sustain feed their family, to comfort their family, um, and while we're Zooming and everything else that are kind of relatively accessible. Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm assuming your approach is going to continue this way of just thinking about, you know, when you think about the food space, the restaurant space, all of it, it is a diverse world, right? It's people who come from other countries and open up a restaurant, they bring their culture with them, their food with them. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. That's what makes it so exciting. You know, I had the good fortune before I was a book editor for many Mm -hmm. years and thought briefly about with friends what maybe we should open up a restaurant one day. It was just a fantasy. And someone said, you know, before you do that, you have to talk to this guy named Anthony Bourdain. And I had the good fortune of, of befriending him. And one of the things he loved was just how diverse and interesting the kitchens were. And I got to work with him every Friday for a couple of months. And it's true. People from all walks of life, all different kinds of you know, uh, backgrounds, some lots of culinary experience, some none at all, different continents. It was it was beautiful. I loved it. Well, is there something about food in particular? I always think about that. I'm from a large family. We dinner was a big deal for us. We sat around the table when we had company, we just pulled up another chair. And it was just this wonderful experience. But I do think about how food can help us maybe cross some of those divides that are so systemic in our society. Absolutely. I think it's how we get to know each other. You know, it's how we extend friendship and, you know, it's how we flirt with each other. It's how we comfort each other. I mean, I think one of the hardest things about the whole pandemic is not, you know, when something goes wrong, not being able to walk over, uh, you know, a dish that you're so proud of and that, you know, will kind of provide some comfort. So absolutely. 
so, food brings us together. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. So tell me about the restaurant industry. They have definitely come together, supported uh, frontline workers, done so much. It's been an industry, though, as I said at the top, disproportionately impacted because of the pandemic and the shutdown. What's the way back? What are you hearing from folks in the food and restaurant space? Well, they've all had to be incredibly innovative. I'm sure you've reported one in four jobs lost in the pandemic belong in the in the food and beverage space. They've, you know, created pantries where they sell olive oil or salt. They've extended their takeout and made it much more robust. And I don't know that we're ever going to go, you know, we're going to turn away from that. The outdoor dining, particularly in New York where I live, has just been really kind of electric, everything from teepees and tents to uh, structures with lots of heat. But it's been hard for them. That was Don Davis, editor of Bon Appetit. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And check out to our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's where you'll find our extra podcast this week. It's Kozema Shipchandler, CFO of the cloud communication platform company Twilio. It's a stock and company, Tim, that has been on a tear. And you can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Bloomberg Business Week gets available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a good and safe weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.